Welcome, Professor Jurgensmeyer, and thank you so much for talking to us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Could you first, for the listeners, introduce yourself and how you would like to be identified? I'm Mark Jurgensmeyer. I'm the director of the Orfla Center for Global and International Studies at UCSB. And we're here today to talk about the ongoing violence happening in Ukraine since the Russian invasion on February 24th of this year. So Russia has stepped up its deadly assaults in Western Ukraine, killing 35 and wounding more than 100. Over 1,000 civilians are injured and over 600 have been killed. There's been intense efforts to support Ukrainian refugees. In other media outlets, you've called these attacks an assault on freedom. For the listeners, could you give some background as to Russian relations with Ukraine and NATO that led to where we are today? I mean, if you look on a map, you can see that half of the Ukraine is surrounded by Eastern Europe, and the other half of the Ukraine is surrounded by Russia and Belarus, which is kind of an extension of Russia these days. The map shows you what the problem is. One one face of Ukraine is European, and, and they like to be a part of the EU, and they like to be a part of NATO. Uh, and the other face of Ukraine faces towards Russia. And Russia has traditionally regarded Ukraine as kind of the frontier of Russia. In fact, the very name Ukraine means the borderlands of Russia. From a Russian perspective, Ukraine is kind of a breakaway province. That's the way Putin sees it. And in Ukraine, there are both Russian-speaking people who kind of identify with Russia, particularly in the eastern part of Ukraine, and people who speak Ukrainian and are much more identified with Europe in the western part of Ukraine. But you know, all of Ukraine now has a certain nationalism to it. They're proud of their identity, whether they're Russian-speaking or Ukrainian-speaking. The religion is associated with the Orthodox faith that Russians, uh, Russian Orthodoxy is, but they have their own patriarch. They have a, a Ukrainian autocephalic church, which means they have their own pope. They're proudly independent in so many different ways. So this idea that they're simply a breakaway province of Russia is more an old-fashioned Putin idea and not one that really squares with modern-day Ukrainians, as he's found out uh, to his peril. <laughs> you know, he thought that Gee, it would be so easy just to romp right in and everybody would greet him as heroes and be so glad to be liberated. That didn't happen. So even Vladimir Putin in his UN address before he invaded Ukraine on February 24th said, as NATO expands to the east with every passing year, the situation for our country is getting worse and more dangerous. What does an independent Ukraine have to do with this NATO expansion and how is it making things more worse or dangerous for Russia? The idea of NATO is seen totally different from a European perspective and from a Putin-Russian perspective. From the European and American perspective, we're simply having a defense agreement primarily to protect us from Russia. from Russia expansion. It's just a matter of making sure that countries feel secure and that they'll be backed up with American military power. From the Putin-Russian perspective, it looks like the forces are ganging up on his Western front and that they might want to, I don't know, invade Russia. It's, It's just It's not clear, but in any event, it's seen as a threat uh, in a way that doesn't make any sense from an American-European perspective when the whole point of NATO is defensiveness, and it really hasn't done much during its many years of existence. I mean, just fairly recently, people talked about NATO as old-fashioned, it was going out of style, really, why are we still doing this? Of course, Trump wanted to abandon it 
but that's in part because he was influenced by Putin. Uh, so it's, it's seen quite differently from the two different perspectives. What do you think this spells out for these multilateral organizations like NATO or the UN for international relations in the future? Yeah, there are two dimensions of the conflict in Ukraine. And one dimension is the Russians invading Ukraine and wanting to you know, basically take what they think is a breakaway province and restore it to Mother Russia. And this is part of Putin's megalomania, wanting to restore the Soviet Union and wanting to recreate the power and the glory of the old Soviet past. Uh, and it's, of course, a tragic a tragic miscalculation from Putin's point of view that, that these people would simply rise up and greet him as a hero and Ukraine would be easy to conquer. Uh, and, and the tragedy, of course, is experienced because his army has been so inefficient and ineffective that they've gone back to the old Russian scorched earth playbook that they used in Syria and also in Chechnya, just bombing the hell out of all these cities, which is horrible. It's just horrible. I mean, it's a is a human tragedy. So that's one level. The question is, what should we do about it? How can we avoid getting into a wider war? At the same time, we're protecting the sovereignty and the freedom of the people in Ukraine. So that's that's the local <laughs> problem, which is a real problem. I'm not diminishing that. But then there's a global political issue, and that is the alliance of China with Russia, which is a very disconcerting element of this whole situation. And so you're wondering, why? why? What does China have at stake in this? In some ways, none. I mean, she is very much a very cagey politician, and he very much is promoting himself, she, and also China. But China has its own ideas about expanding their territory and reclaiming what they think of as breakaway provinces. And specifically, that would be Taiwan. And you've already seen in the case of the Uyghur in, in the western part of China, the attempt to make sure that these people are not a breakaway republic as they would like to be, the same way with Taiwan that they are part of China. Uh, Hong Kong, although proudly independent uh, for many years under the British and thought that would, the deal was that they would maintain their independence. She has changed all of that. And so now his eyes are on Taiwan. And could that be the next uh, domino that's going to fall? I don't know. I mean, it could happen relatively soon. Uh, she could see this is an ideal time now that the U.S. and, and NATO are all concerned with uh, Ukraine. This might be an ideal time to move into Taiwan. Uh, Japan, of course, is very nervous about that possibility because Japan's own territorial integrity, particularly the islands off of the coast of Japan, are, are at stake as well. And needless to say, the Taiwanese are very uh, concerned about this. And the U.S. has had a longstanding defense pact with Taiwan that any incursion into Taiwan Taiwan would be then supported by the U.S. Will the U.S. live up to this? This is, in a sense, is binding a, a military agreement as our commitment to NATO. If China then invades uh, Taiwan, are we then going to get into a war with China? At the same time, we're very close to a war with Russia. Sounds like the old Cold War, doesn't it? <laughs> And interestingly, just like the old Cold War, India, the second largest country on the planet after China, is trying to stay neutral. It's trying to avoid siding with either the, the West or particularly with Russia when it comes to the Ukraine situation. 
And that's in part because of the longstanding relationship between Russia and India. Uh, but of course, India also has longstanding friendship with the United States, which they don't want to imperil either. So they say, well, we'll stay neutral and maybe that will help us be honest brokers and, and help us to negotiate an end of this conflict. That's a nice idea. I hope that happens. But in the meantime, you can see that they're playing a very cagey role, just as they did during the Cold War. So we're in a very curious moment of geopolitics where it looks like history in a very tragic way is repeating itself. Thank you so much. So I want to circle back a bit. Um, you mentioned nationalism and the we want to d- discuss how the role of hegemony um, plays into this entire crisis. Um, so what does that kind of power struggle have to do with this and other territory disputes? Well, the whole idea of nationalism could be interpreted in so many different ways. And they clearly in the Russian case, they've seen it in an expansive way uh, that the Russian identity is not just a narrow one, the region around what originally was called Moscovy, but also includes many of the territories that are part of the old Soviet Union. But I think that's part of the flaw with the concept of nationalism. It goes back to the European enlightenment and the birth of the nation state with the agreement at, at Westphalia that it There should be a cultural connection to statehood, that there should be a natural natural people that then uh, have some relationship to the state and that they have, as Rousseau said, a social contract with their government. But in the 21st century, we're in a situation where everyone can live everywhere, and, and we do, and there's no longer the kind of natural boundaries. So the whole notion of nationalism is in some ways problematic. And we've seen, and that becomes a political issue. It becomes a political issue internally. You can see during the last administration how they tried to play up the fears of white uh, Christian Europeans, uh, people of European background, that the the country was changing and we were becoming a, a different kind of multicultural nation. Well, in California, we think that's great, of course. I mean, most of us do. Um, you know, that's part of what makes living in California such a wonderful experience that we have, a, we're part of a global community. But that can be also seen as threatening to people who have a different idea about what nationalism is and who should be a part of it. And you see the same problem throughout Europe with the rise of right wing parties that are very uh, antagonistic towards immigrants because it kind of insults their idea of what. French should be, France should be for the French and there's people should look French and they should speak French. And except of course, when <laughs> these Africans are, are winning their soccer team and then suddenly they're very proud that they're part of France. But, but before then, uh, you know, it becomes problematic. So this is, this is a situation throughout, throughout the world. What is, what is nationalism and how, how do we claim a national identity and, and how do we we draw the borders. It, this has always been a problem in the Middle East because the national borders in many parts of the Arabian Peninsula were drawn after the end of the Ottoman Empire uh, by European powers. It really had not a lot of sense about where the boundary should be. And so the unfinished business of Iraq and Syria and Lebanon and Israel and Palestine are in part because the way in which these nation states were created by European powers Britain and France specifically after the end of the Ottoman Empire. 
So nationalism is, a, is an unfinished project uh, throughout the world. And we're seeing uh, some signs of extreme nationalism, xenophobic nationalism, uh, extreme nationalism, also often called fascism, uh, where we're kind of glorifying the power of the state. And you're certainly seeing this exhibited in Putin's idea of the nationalism of Russia, where he's identified his own glory, his own power with the glory and power of Russia. That's a very dangerous combination, you know, when leaders confuse their own personal ambitions with national ambitions, but he certainly has done that. Uh, and he wants to see himself as, I don't know, the new Stalin or something, you know, who can recreate the old Soviet Union and bring it, Russia back to its glory days. He's, nothing embarrassed him more than the collapse of the Soviet Union and the, and the emergence of independent nation states after what had been this grand empire. So he wants to restore that in the most brutal of ways. Uh, it, it's a tragic vision, unfortunately, and part of the tragedy is that it won't work. The cat's out of the bag. Ukrainians have a sense of nationalism. He's never going to be able to control Ukraine. Yeah, he could destroy the cities. He could put in puppet governments. People are not going to support that. And so it's going to be like Afghanistan when the Soviets thought that they could come in and support the socialist government in Afghanistan and make it into a client state of Russia. And that turned out to be a disastrous enterprise, just as in a different way. It was a disastrous enterprise for the Americans when they tried to create their own version of an American uh, country in Afghanistan. We're not very good at taking over, we meaning any any power, whether it's Russia or the United States, taking over other people's countries and trying to make them like ourselves. And Putin is about to find that out in a very sad and tragic way. Uh, in Chechnya. Thank you so much. Um, To pivot a little bit, more than 2.5 million Ukrainians have fled their country since the invasion, um, taking flight to surrounding places like Romania, Hungary, Slovakia. What does this mean for surrounding nations in terms of refugees? Well, I think we should welcome Ukrainian refugees throughout the world. We should welcome them to the United States, and we should have welcomed the Afghans. We should have welcomed those Central Americans and Haitians who are fleeing from terrible situations. People are refugees, not because they want to be. <laughs> they want to, most people want to stay in their homes. They want, to, they want life to continue the way they have been. And, and they flee and sometimes in the most perilous kind of situations, sometimes walking hundreds of miles as that, you know, are commuting hundreds of miles the way that kid did in Ukraine. But they're little kids from the, from Nicaragua and Guatemala and El Salvador, who've done the same thing, have come to American borders. And, and we, need to, we need to welcome them. We need to show support for them. We need to be as gracious to them as we would want people to be gracious to us if we were in a similar kind of situation. So yes, we need to open our hearts and our homes to refugees throughout the world and not just say, oh, well, this is Poland's problem. And Poland's already up to its gills in refugees. Uh, so is Austria and Hungary. And Slovenia, they, these are, are countries that have already been impacted by Syrian refugees. And, and, some, and often they've put up fences to reject them, uh, which, is, which is horrible. <laughs> and, and, and we should take that burden upon ourselves and other countries and other parts of the world. You can transport people relatively easy in, in 
modern era, if we open up our hearts and homes to people uh, who are in tragic need, and this should be the case with the Ukrainians, but it also should be the case with people who are impacted by similar circumstances, wherever they are in the world. Well, Professor, do you have any final comments to add to our discussion? Um, how has this affected your thinking of global affairs? You know, some people say that these kinds of situations show that globalization is dead and that global studies as a field doesn't have a purpose anymore. I think it's just the opposite because these movements are global in their scope and their response to global forces. And so that very global character of the rise of new forms of nationalism is a subject for global studies and is a part of the complex pattern of globalization. Not all aspects of globalization are good. <laughs> Not all aspects of globalization are bring people together. Sometimes it divide them and sometimes it leads to tribalism and defensiveness. But all of that is part of seeing the world in a global perspective. So I think that global studies has a future and globalization in its own way has a future and I hope a much better one than we're seeing at present. Well, thank you so much once again, Professor Jurgensmeyer, for joining us today on KCSB News. You're welcome. Good talking with you.